All right, let's take our Bibles out. We're going to turn to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapters 33 and 34 we're going to consider here this morning. Beginning in chapter 33 and verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send the angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. And I think by ornaments it's just talking about you know, bracelets and necklaces and earrings and jewelry like that. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now the tabernacle that's going to be built is often also referred to sometimes as a tent of meeting. This is not that tent. Verse 8, Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. And that gives us a little inclination as to the type of person Joshua was. Because he's going to fill the shoes of Moses when Moses' time is done. Well, in verse 12, it says, Moses said to the Lord, See you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do for you, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, which is the word Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy." And he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. You know, I understand that a lot of people got the opportunity to see the President on Friday down in, in Bemidji. I was talking to one individual and I said, so are you going down to that thing? And they said, yeah. 
they were going to try. And that was probably, I don't know, maybe around noon or something. And the event wasn't until like 6 o'clock at night. And they said, we've heard that there's already over 3,000 people at the airport down there at this event. That is a crowded place. They're out there going to gather around and support the president and, and to get within a short distance. I don't know, have you ever been that close of a distance to a sitting president of the United States? I haven't, and I, that's kind of a cool thing. Being that close to the probably the most powerful person, the most influential person on the face of the earth at that given moment. That's an amazing thing. As, as cool as that is, it pales in significance to what we're looking at with this experience in Exodus. Because we're seeing Moses and the children of Israel. And God, remember, Exodus kind of breaks down into two themes. God delivering the people of Israel out of Egypt. God dwelling with the people in the wilderness. And that's we're in that second part of that. So that's our focus is experiencing the presence of God within the nation of Israel. He was just giving Moses the instructions of how that's going to take place with the tent. We went over those a few weeks ago. And how this tent is going to end up being put right in the middle of the nation of Israel. And God's going to dwell with His people and among His people. And the people blew it. The people blew it. And so now there's this you know, threat of judgment. Some judgment's carried out. There's God decides to be merciful and to exercise some forgiveness. And we see Moses going out to this other tent, this little tent that he sets up outside the camp, to go out and to experience the presence of God there. And people bring their request to Moses. Moses would go meet with God over those things. And so that's what this whole passage is about, is, is, is the presence of God and their experience of that presence. And there's a, really a contrast going on here between Moses' experience and the experience of the rest of the nation. Because the rest of the nation, they're in the camp and they're standing by their tent door and it says that they put a, a tent up for Moses or Moses constructed a tent and it says outside the camp. And in fact, it says outside the camp. And then it says far from the camp, outside the camp. And that's where the glory of God would come and rest as He would meet with Moses and answer the prayers and hear the prayers of the people of Israel through Moses. But these two chapters are all about how this is going to play out. How... Are we going to experience God's presence? Is He going to go with us as we leave from here? Is He going to stay behind? And you know, it's the same in our life. Our life really isn't about keeping the rules. It's not about following a, a religion. It's about the presence of God in our life. Jesus came down and entered our life. He entered our world. He entered our experience. And He did that to take our sorrows and pains and brokenness and sin upon Himself to pay our debt so that we can experience the presence of God. And that happens in a few different stages because when we first put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes into us and resides within us. He indwells us. And so as He indwells us, we, that is one experience of the presence of God. He, God is now present with us. We talked before about how both us collectively as a church are referred to as the temple of God and us individually as a Christian are also referred to as the temple of God, which is what? The home of God, the abiding place of God, because the Holy Spirit indwells and lives within us. And so that's one way that we get to experience the presence of God. Uh, And then the way that we really look forward to is the way that's coming in the future. 
when Jesus Christ comes to get us and to bring us back to be with Himself, where we get to go be with Him. And the Apostle Paul looked forward to that day saying, you know what, right now I look through a glass dimly. Then I'll see face to face. And that's where we'll experience the greatest experience of God's presence. We have the same issue. What could really be more important in our life than experiencing God's presence in our life and knowing how to live and to walk in that presence? That's exactly what Israel and Moses are dealing with in this passage. And so that's what we're going to look at here this morning is this idea of experiencing God's presence. Well, there's about five different truths that I've located as I look through this passage. Five different truths about experiencing God's presence. The first truth that I see that stands out prominently is found in the first six verses of chapter 33. And that is that the blesser, and I know that that's not really a word, but I'm going to use it anyway. The blesser is greater than the blessing. Because look at what happens. God comes to Israel. Moses has stood before between God and Israel just like Jesus Christ did for us. Moses stood between God and Israel and said, don't do this, God. Don't destroy them. Let them live. Let's uh, continue to make a great nation out of them. And so now this is God's response. He says, okay, I'm going to do that. Uh, You guys, it's time for you to pack up. Leave Mount Sinai. And he tells Moses, I want you to do what we planned on doing. Take these people and lead them and go up to the promised land. The land, he describes it the same way he did when he made the promises back before. He says the land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to go up to that same land. You're going to still enjoy all those blessings. I'm going to send an angel ahead of you and he's going to take care of your enemies. So your enemies are still going to fall before you just like I told you before. So God is basically saying, you go up, same plan. All the blessings, they're yours. Only thing is, I'm not going with you. So God is offering them all the blessings, but no relationship. You're going to go up. You're going to have a good life. You're going to inhabit the land. You're going to, your enemies are going to be driven out before you. All that stuff's going to happen, but not me. I'm staying back. The people saw that statement as disastrous. It's not just about going and enjoying the land flowing with milk and honey. It's not just about being protected from your enemies. It's about God being with you. They see that as disastrous. And and they're absolutely right. The main thing in all of this is to dwell with God. To live with Him in this intimate relationship with Him. And they were offered, look, you can have all the blessings without the relationship. And they said, no, please no. That would be disastrous. But you know, I was stopping and thinking about it. I think how many people go through life without giving God much of a thought because life is just going okay. Because life is going smooth. Because in God's common grace that He has for everybody, life tends to typically go pretty good. And so how many people, just because God's not rocking their world or allowing the consequences of their own sin to destroy everything that they're living through, just continue to go about their business, enjoy life without even hardly giving God a thought? See, that's pretty much what God's offering them. He's saying, look, I'm offering you a smooth life and and the promised land and all that stuff. I'm just not going. They're like, no, no. Because we can have a tendency to do that. In experiencing the presence of God, we're after the blesser, not just the blessing. We're not just after the salvation. We're after the Savior. We're after the One that loved us so much to give us that salvation. It's the heart of the person that loves us that much. That's what we want. You know, I can remember as a as a kid, thinking, 
Christmas and birthdays and those kind of things when you got these gifts and stuff. I remember thinking those gifts were great. The gifts were never greater than my parents. They're the ones that loved me enough to get me those gifts and to try to make a happy Christmas or birthday or whatever. The blessings are just a fruit of the relationship. And the relationship is what we need. Well, not only is the blesser greater than the blessing, but then also we see the presence of God is what makes us distinct. That's exactly what Moses points out to him. He says in verse 16, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? How else are we going to be different than everybody else? It can't be because we worship a God. Every country out there worships, worships gods. Every people has gods that they worship. It can't be that we have rules. Other people have rules for how they live within society. We can only be distinct if you go with us. If us living with you is what makes us different, that's the only way we're going to be different. Well, not only that, but we also see that we need the presence of God. We need them. And it's interesting to watch the, the conversation that happens between Moses and God here on this point. Because what happens is, God comes to Moses and He says, look, I'm not coming with you. You know why? Because this people is a stiff-necked people. And He, and he says it twice. In uh, verse 3, I think it is, He says it. He says, for you are a stiff-necked people. And then again in verse 5, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. But, let's look in the next chapter, chapter 34, in verse 9. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. You notice they both gave the same reason, but with opposite intended results. God says, Moses, I can't go with you guys because you're a stiff-necked people and that's going to lead to your demise. Moses turns, kind of turns the table and he says, God, we are stiff-necked people, so we cannot go without you. You see, God looks at it and says, Moses, they're so stiff-necked that they're going to be in trouble. Moses says, God, they're going to be in so much trouble that they're not going to make it without you. God says, because they're so rebellious, they need to go without My presence. Moses said, because they're so rebellious, they need Your presence. In fact, that description of them doesn't go away. If you look up into Second Chronicles in chapter 30, Hezekiah is trying to gather the nations of Israel and Judah and the tribes beyond the Jordan all together. And he says, do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to His sanctuary which He has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God, that His fierce anger may turn away from you. You know, up into the New Testament, it still looks back at them, those forefathers as a stiff-necked people. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, when he's preaching the Gospel to the leaders of Israel at their time, he applies that same attribute to the leaders of his current day. He says in verse 51, If you stiff-necked, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Stephen, a deacon within the church, gets a chance to preach the Gospel and he goes through a recount of Israel's history pointing toward the cross. 
And he says, look, you're as stiff-necked as your forefathers were. They rebelled against Moses and against God. You guys have destroyed the Holy One that God sent that Moses talked about. You're as hard-hearted as they were. And you know what? He's really telling them the same thing. You need Christ. You're so hard-hearted. You're so stiff-necked. You need Christ. That's what Moses was doing. He's saying, look, God, these people, you can't send them off on their own. You can't send us off on our own. We need you because of our sin. And that is exactly the point. You know what? It wasn't until I realized I, I realized my sin that I recognized my need for Christ. You know, I also see it not only in the description of their stiff-necked condition, their rebellious condition, but we also see it in the God's offer of mercy. In verse 19, it said, And He said, I will make all My goodness pass before you and will pro- proclaim before you My name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. In Exodus chapter 34, God gives a description of Himself. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So God describing Himself there, and He's a God of of graciousness. He's a God of steadfast love and compassion. He's a God of mercy. He's also a God of justice. The last couple lines, uh, verse 9 in chapter 34, Moses tells him, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And that's exactly what God does. And so we see that we need the presence of God. God comes into our life through these things, through a forgiveness of our sins and giving us mercy and unfailing love that He gives to us through the person of Jesus Christ. You want to know how to experience the presence of God in your life? That's where it starts. In Christ. That's also where it ends. In Christ. And everywhere in between, it's in Christ. If you get to a point in your life where you kind of drift away or you step away or, or you follow, start to follow a different path, if you ever wonder where God is, He didn't move. Just go back there. He's still in the same place. And that's the, the next truth that I see within this passage is that God has not moved. Chapter 34, God's deciding He's going to forgive Israel. He's going to go with them up into the promised land. He's going to stay among His people. So now, what happens? Moses is going back up the mountain for another 40 days. Bring the tablets because we're going to put the Ten Commandments back on the tablets. Same commandments. No difference. Same rules. Same God. Same people. God has not changed. He's not saying, well, you know what? Apparently you couldn't handle that no graven image thing. And so we're going to, we're going to change that for you. That's going to be acceptable now. He didn't say, apparently you have trouble with the Worshiping, not worshiping other gods, or and so um, you know what that that just must be your thing. That must be your path. You must need to follow that path. God does not say that. You know, He takes these people that rebelled against Him and were breaking all the commandments, and He says, "You know what? I'm going to forgive you. Here's your new commandments. They look remarkably similar to the old ones." You know, I remember experiencing that same kind of thing in, in, in my life when I was a late teenager. I remember I rebelled against my parents in my home. 
It was all really mainly for the cause of rebellion, I think. I was just going to prove that I could do whatever I wanted. But I was living under their roof. And my dad said, you can't do whatever you want and live under my roof. And so I pushed them until I was finally not under their roof. And just continued to do what I wanted. And my life kind of fell apart. Lost a job. Got kicked out of school for a few days. Nothing I did really went well. At the end, I finally came to my senses. I went back to my mom and dad and said, I'd like to come home. And I can hear my dad say it today. Same rules. Nothing's changed. My stint in rebellion didn't change anything. If you're going to come back in this house, same rules. I knew that's how it would be. And I just said, I'm good with that. And I went back. You know, that's exactly what God's doing. God's saying, okay, I'm going to forgive. Plans back on like normal. But here's the deal. Nothing's changed. Back up on the mountain for 40 more days. Same instructions for the tabernacle. Same Ten Commandments. Same all that stuff. We're going to rewrite them on stone tablets just like we did last time. This is written in stone. It's not flexible. When we get tempted to follow a path of sin or to take a direction that God tells us not to take, that's not going to change who God is. Your choosing to do it isn't going to make it right. It isn't going to make it okay. Right is still right. Wrong is still wrong. God is still God. And we are not. Well, finally, lastly, intimacy increases our experience of God's presence. What do I need to do to to experience the presence of God in my life in a stronger way? You know, it's like any other relationship. The more time you spend in a relationship on a deep level, the deeper that relationship goes. God and Moses are in this conversation. Notice in verse 13. He says, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Do you notice how that comes around? Moses, because God has told Moses, you found favor in my sight. Moses says, okay, if that's true, if, if I've found favor in your sight, then uh, grant me this one request. And what is his request? Show me your ways. Teach me you. And what's the conclusion of that? Moses says, so that I can find favor in your sight. You see, Moses is saying, look, if I found favor in your sight, then let me learn about you more. Let me grow closer to you so that I can find even more favor in your sight. It's like a big, like a snowball rolling down the hill. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. That's the way our relationship is with God. When we draw near to God, we become more intimately aware of Him, more knowledge of Him. We grow in our understanding as we draw to Him in prayer and we draw to Him in the Word of God and in encouragement, mutual encouragement to the believers through gathering together as His church and, and through all these things. As we draw near to God, what happens is it just continues to grow. Nearness to God fosters more nearness to God. A greater understanding of God fosters a better experience of His presence within your life and a greater understanding of who He is. In fact, that's exactly what this is really pictured in what's happening in chapter 34. Because Moses goes up onto the mountain again, and he's in the presence of God, and God in all of His glory radiates onto Moses. So Moses is kind of like being in the sun. The longer you're in the sun, the deeper shade of red you get if you're me. Because of the radiation of the sun. Well, Moses was before God and, and, and he was beginning to glow 
because of being up with God for 40 days. And so he's radiating the glory of God. He doesn't even know it. He doesn't even know it, but everybody else can see it. And as he comes down off the mountain from being with God, everybody sees his face just radiating the glory of God. And they're like, oh, Moses. And it scares them and they tell them, cover that up. They kind of creeped him out. And so he covers it. He puts a veil. They make a veil for him that covers his face. As Moses spent more and more time beholding the glory of God, he radiated the glory of God himself. In fact, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul uses that as an, an analogy of what our Christian life is like and how we're supposed to experience the, the glory of God in our life and how that should reflect from off of our life. In 2 Corinthians, in chapter 3, he says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. You see, they saw the glory of God radiating off of Moses, and they said, cover that up, please. Wow! Really? You get to see the, the glory of God radiating off of this person and your response is cover it up. Now the response is partly right because it should ignite a, a, some kind of a fear because God is an awesome God. But cover it up? That just seems crazy to me. And the Apostle Paul says, you know what? The Israelites are still like that. He says, look at the, what the leaders are doing now. Look at the glory that's coming from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's still, it's like that veil. He says that veil is still there. Whenever the Old Testament is read in their synagogues and they hear those things that all point to Christ, the veil is still there. They're still blinded. They still can't see it. But then he goes on to say, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When they finally See Christ in their heart turns to the Lord. The veil, the blinders are taken off. And then all of a sudden you can see clearly. Then you get to see. And what would they see? As the veil comes down, what's behind it? The glory of God. Now they can see the glory of God when they, as, a, as a heart turns to the Lord. And you know what? That's exactly what happens in our life. Not just theirs. There's, we have blinders on. We're blinded by our own sin. Satan has us blinded until the moment that we put our faith in Christ and all of a sudden the blinders are off and we can see the glory of God. He goes on to say, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He's saying it's exactly for you like it was for Moses. Little by little, as Moses beheld the glory of God, Moses' face got brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. To where when he came down off the mountain, he was radiating the glory of God. He says that's exactly what your experience of the presence of God is like. The more you behold His glory through His Word, in prayer, as we're gathered with one another, the more you behold His glory, it will start to do that to you. We all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, which is a change from the inside out, 
into the same image. What the same image is what? As His glory. From one degree of glory to another. In other words, it's progressive. When we first put our faith in Jesus Christ, we instantly start to reflect His glory a little bit. But the more we get before Him, and the more that we learn of Him, and the more that we get to know Him, the brighter we become. The more His glory passes on us, and the more we are experiencing the presence of God leads to a greater experience of the presence of God. As we do experience the presence of God, these truths will do us well to keep them in mind. That the, It's about the blesser, not just the blessings. In fact, it's His presence in our life that makes us distinct. We need that presence because of our sinfulness. Without His presence in our life, we go the wrong direction. Our life isn't a shining example of what it should be. If we get lost a little bit, God hasn't moved. And then also... Our experience of the presence of God leads to a greater experience of the presence of God as we continue to behold His glory.